Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. The fear of failure can be a powerful thing. And if we're not careful, a crippling one. Do you know that in all of Scripture, Jesus never asks us to invite him into our hearts. Jesus doesn't call us to believe in him. Rather, he calls us to follow him, to be his disciples, to die to ourselves, to surrender ourselves wholly and completely to him, that we would live for him and be all about him. Jesus calls us to a radical life that requires us to lay down our own. And Jesus, after dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead to give us life, right before ascending into heaven to prepare a place for us, gives us one final command to go, to make disciples. This is the mission of his people. And this mission that Jesus gives is not just for church staff and a small group of oversaved people. It's for all Christians everywhere. The mission that Jesus gives is for every person who would call themselves by his name, every person who would seek and desire to follow him and to have life with him. And the question that I have then is if this is the mission that is given to all Christians, why do we not all live as missionaries in the communities that Jesus has placed us in, devoting ourselves to him? And I think the reason that we do not do so often what Jesus has called us to do. It's not because we don't love Jesus. It's not because we don't want to honor and follow Jesus. It's because the task of doing so feels so incredibly overwhelming. It's because the devil takes the size, scope, and weight of what we have been called to do, and he uses it to build our insecurity to make us feel inadequate and incapable because we say, well, who am I? Or what can I do for that? How can I really make a difference? Because okay, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough for the Bible. I can't communicate well enough. I'm not equipped or prepared or capable to do that. We start thinking that we'll fail. And if we fail, then God's going to be mad at us because we failed and so it's better to not even start so we don't mess it up. We get that that's the mission, but there are people more qualified and more capable than us of taking care of that mission, so we need to just get out of their way. And too often, we let the pressure of our purpose prevent us from persevering in what God has called us to do. So we're in our series, The Kingdom is Here studying through the book of Nehemiah, and today we have a really special treat in honor of the lovely weather that we're having. We're going to unpack all of Nehemiah chapter 7, which is 73 verses. 
and just as you thought it couldn't get better than that, and your excitement is flying into orbit like an Elon Musk mission to Mars, there's more good news. Chapter 7 is a giant list of names. What could be And you thought Christmas was over. So before we unpack and unwrap that little present that whoever designed this series left for me, which was me, mad at myself, we got to finish up chapter 6. Pastor Rick took us through verse 14, so today we're going to start off in chapter 6, verse 15. Last week we saw opposition. We saw obstacles, we saw threats, and people working against, threatening to do harm to the people of God. And church, that is not unusual. That is the norm. The church was born in persecution. The church thrives in persecution. We exist and we're intended to be different from the world around us. What is unusual historically and culturally is the world that we live in, in the West. Being born into a quasi-Christian-esque society where Christianity is still the normative majority. That's the weird bit. But it doesn't change the reality that when you seek to live for God and to do what God has called you to do, you are going to encounter opposition. Some of the opposition that you will encounter will come from people that you thought were friends. Some of the obstacles and opportunities and some of the, the struggles and opposition that you're going to go through are going to be from people who should be on your side because they call themselves Christians too. So they should be seeking to do the very same thing that you are, but when they look at your devotion, it makes them uncomfortable, and so they start undermining what you're doing. But the reality is wherever kingdom work is done, it will always be met with worldly opposition. Because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are not friends. They are diametrically opposed to one another in every way. There is no neutral party. There's no territory that's not involved. Either we work to build the kingdom of God or we work to build the kingdom of the world. And whichever kingdom you work for, you make yourself an enemy of the other. And so that leads us into verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. So they started somewhere in August and ended right around October in 52 days. All right, 52 days. Is that what it took them to rebuild the wall around a city? Like, let that sink in for a second. 52 days. The wall is 8 feet thick, 40 feet high, 2.5 miles long, and they completed it in 52 days. I have boxes in my house that have taken me longer to unpack, and they're not even heavy. <laughs> These people rebuilt the wall, a giant wall, which has to be secure, because it's kind of a wall, and the whole point is to keep people out, so if they can just walk up and push it over, kind of defeats the purpose. They built a secure, stable wall out of rock, in less than two months. At the beginning of the book, Nehemiah spends four months in prayerful preparation before even beginning the project. What that means is that Nehemiah spent twice as long praying about the project as it actually took to complete the project. 
52 days. That's not just rebuilding the wall. That also meant they had to remove the rubble and the ruins of the old wall so they could build the new wall in its place. In addition to doing all of that while facing obstacles, threats, taunts, criticism, forces working on the outside against them, and even forces from their own people working to undermine what they were doing, and they did it in 52 days. Verse 16, and when all our enemies had heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt great and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judea sent many letters to Tobiah. Tobiah is an enemy of the Israelites. And Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. So this is people who were in Jerusalem sending letters to the enemy, providing him with information that he could use to then undermine their work. For many in Judah were bound to him by oath because he was the son-in-law of Shekiah, the son of Orah, the son of Jehonan, who had taken the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Barachas, Barachas, Yep, this is going to be real fun when we get into the names. As his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. So these are people who are sending letters to the enemy, and then they're talking about how great the enemy is to the guy that they're supposed to be working alongside. Spoke good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. So after the work of building the wall was done, After all the exhaustion, the pain, the fatigue, the sleepless nights, and the worries from all the troubles and threats that they face, Nehemiah doesn't take credit for the work. He doesn't give credit to the people for building it, even though they're literally the ones who built it. The enemies of God, pagan, non-believing nations, when they saw what the Jews had accomplished, were afraid because they recognized the power of the hand of God at work for his people. So unbelieving nations saw what the Jews accomplished and were afraid of their own strength because they saw the power of God. That is how powerful and effective this project was. Why? Because the enemy nations recognized that there was no way that that ragtag group of people accomplished that task and that amount of time because it was not possible. So they saw God in it. So we have a tendency, church, to look at what we can do. We look at our strengths, our talents, and our comfort zone. And we build for ourselves a little a lane. Right, this is how I'm going to serve God. This is what I'm going to do for God. I'm going to use these gifts. I'm going to use these talents that he's given me to serve him. And that's a good thing. Okay? When we use the gifts and talents that God has given us to serve and to bring glory to him, that is called stewardship. However, the danger in that becomes we start thinking that our gifts and talents are exclusively the places that God's going to use us. Well, here's my strength. Here's what I'm good at. Here's the area that I'm comfortable in. So God's got to use me here. What happens when God calls you to do something outside of that lane? What happens when God says he's going to put you over here? You go, I'm not good at that. I'm not capable of that. I'm not qualified to do that. What happens when God calls you to do something that you don't have the capacity to know how to do? What we typically do is we start making excuses. 
We start stepping back and going, you know what? No, that, that's not for me. I must have got somebody else's mail. I felt like God was saying this, but it couldn't have been for me because there are other people who could do that better than me. God should have asked them to do it because they're gifted at that, not me. But who am I? What can I do? I don't know how to do that. See, we live in a culture that idolizes qualifications. So we look at a task and we go, oh, I'm not qualified to do it, therefore I shouldn't do it. And qualifications are a great thing. That's fine. It's awesome. So what happens when God deliberately, as he often does, calls you to an area where you're not qualified to be? Remember what Nehemiah's job was before all this? He's not a builder. He's not an architect. He's not a city planner. You know what Nehemiah's job is? He was a cupbearer. His job was to drink wine for the king to make sure it's not poisoned. Nothing about that says go rebuild a city and put the hopes of a nation on your back so that you can start a cultural national revival. Nope. Nothing about who Nehemiah was, nothing about his experience qualified him, and yet God sends Nehemiah to build a wall. And I know what you're thinking. So if Nehemiah went to go build the wall, that means his job is vacant? Right? Because after the last couple of years that we've had, the idea of getting paid to drink wine for somebody else seems like a pretty sweet gig. Where do I sign up for that? Stop it. I put in my application last week. Get in line. <laughs> Nehemiah was not qualified to do the work that God called him to do. And he is not an isolated case. Gideon was a coward. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Timothy was too young. David is the seventh son, meaning the least qualified worthy son to do what God called him to do. Jacob was a liar. Moses had a speech impediment and was a murderer. Small detail there. Rahab was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene, probably prostitute. The first woman who get, the first person who gets to announce that Jesus is the Messiah is a Samaritan woman who'd had five husbands and was living with a dude she wasn't married to. The disciples, all of them, high school dropouts, unqualified to do the work that God had called them to do, with the exception of Paul, who was extremely well-educated in all the matters of the Jewish faith that Jesus sends to the Gentiles. See a, a pattern forming there? <laughs> Hebrews 11 says that God made them strong in their weakness. 1 Corinthians says that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The point of all of that is that God does some of his best work in areas where we are unqualified and incapable. So we should not be afraid or shrink back when God calls us to something that we don't know how to do. See, if God calls you to use a talent that you have, you'll use that talent. You'll trust in that talent. You'll rely on that talent. You'll turn to that talent because you have confidence in that talent. And in the end, when the project is done, some, if not all, of the credit will go to the talent that you have. God calls you to do something you can't do, something you don't know how to do. You know what you're going to do the whole way? You're going to turn to him. You're going to trust him. You're going to rely on him and depend on him because you know, hey, you told me to do this. I have no idea how to do this. So the only way this is going to work is if I rely on you. 
which is exactly what Nehemiah does every step of the way. He's constantly praying and seeking God and turning to God and making it all about God and focusing on God. And that's, church, kind of the point. He calls us to rely on him, to trust in him, on ourselves. And when you complete a project, when you do something that you have no capacity to do, the glory doesn't go to you, it goes to God. Because when people from the outside look in, they go, they, have, they can't do that. So someone else must have. There must be something else going on here. What you have to understand is that God does not call the equipped. He equips those whom he calls. God does not need you to be gifted. He calls you to be obedient. God does not need you to be qualified. He calls you to be faithful. And sometimes being faithful to God means doing something that you don't know how to do because God said, do it. Sometimes, sometimes, God calls you to something you're not capable of doing on your own deliberately. Because that's where he does some of his best work. So the people of God work together in harmony with a shared purpose and focus on completing the task that God had given to them. And as a result, all the nations around them became afraid because they saw the hand and the power of God at work. Church, that is what we want to do. That is what we want to be in the very essence of our identity as not just individuals, but as a community. We want to be the kind of people that those outside of us look in and they see the hand of God at work from the way that we talk to each other and about each other, from the way that we sacrifice for each other, serve each other, love each other. We want the world to see God in how we live every single day. Because we want the world to look at it and go, only God can make sinners love each other like that. Only God can cause forgiveness after that kind of wrong. Only God can reconcile a marriage that's been broken that effectively. Only God can cause people to treat each other this way. Only God could make selfish people behave in such a selfless manner because I know them. I know their imperfections. And only God can transform a heart like that. That's what we want to be. A community that glorifies God, not just in what we can do, but that can glorify God in what we can't. Because that shows the world who God is. So that leads us to chapter 7. Chapter 7 serves as a transitionary chapter. See, everything before this was about the rebuilding of a wall. Everything after this in the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of a people. So with the walls built and the structures starting to come into place, the people of God begin returning to their city. Because sometimes the first step in a revival is restoration. Sometimes the thing that sparks revival is the building of a physical location for what God will do in that location spiritually. It's not about the buildings. It's not about the walls. Those are means to an end. The point of the wall is not cool. We built a bunch of rocks that we stacked on top of each other like a giant version of Legos. It's not the point. The point is what that, that wall allowed them to accomplish. What that wall created was a place where the people of God could worship God and focus on God without external interference or hindrance. 
So with the wall rebuilt, Nehemiah gets to move on to his greater problem. And that is that the people of God had lost all sense of who they were. These are the Israelites. The people that God had called to be his chosen people, to be a holy nation set apart by the law and unlike all other people on earth. But over the years, they'd begun intermingling and intermarrying with people who were not of the kingdom of God. To put that in a more modern context, the people of God who were called to be all about God and focused on God had allowed worldly perspectives, ideas, values, and beliefs to come in corrupt, taint, and defile the holiness that they were called to have. They allowed outside influences to change what God had called them to be. So that leads us to chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanan and Hanani the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. That is, don't open it early in the morning when it's still dark. Wait till the sun is up and it is fully lit and you can see everything that's happening. And while they are still standing guard, let them be shut and bar the doors. So what he's ultimately saying is the gates need to remain closed unless there are guards there watching and they have full visibility. He's saying do everything possible to ensure that no one has any opportunity to sneak in, not using shadows, not using distraction. Those gates need to be closed while the guards are still watching so that nobody can jump in as they're closing and sneak into the city. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, strategic locations around the city, and some in front of their own homes. It's like a neighborhood watch. So the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So what we see is in the middle of this spiritual formation and in the work that he's beginning to do with the people of God, he is thinking very practically. He's taking very reasonable steps to ensure the safety of the people of God. Have guards at the gates. Make sure that nobody can sneak in the gates by creating clear protocols. He puts godly men in charge. He posts guards at strategic places. He creates neighborhood watches because nobody is going to identify people who don't belong like people who live there and go, hey, he's not one of the people who lives in this house or on this street, so what's he doing here? He created multiple layers of security. To which there are people who would look at that and go, well, he's, he's acting out of fear. He, he doesn't have faith. Why didn't he have faith that God's going to take care of him? Why didn't he have faith that God's going to provide and protect them? Remember the old story about the guy who's like outside his house and it's starting to flood? And then a jeep comes by and goes, hey, let's get out of here. It's flooding. And he goes, no, God will provide. God will save me. And the water starts to rise, so he gets up on his roof, and somebody comes by in a boat, and they're like, hey, get in, we'll drive you to safety. And he goes, nah, God will provide, he'll save me. And the water keeps rising, and the helicopter comes. He's like, hey, get in, we'll save you. And he goes, no, no, God will provide, he'll save me. And then the water keeps rising, and the dude drowns. Right? And he goes to heaven, and he's like, God, why didn't you rescue me? He goes, I sent a car, and I sent a boat, and I sent a helicopter. What more do you want? Remember that story? Moral stories, don't be that guy. Okay? That's, that's really deep. Don't be that guy. See, what that means is that wisdom is not a lack of faith. 
being practical is not being unfaithful. God gave us wisdom, calls us to pursue wisdom. It is a God-honoring value when we use it. It is okay to think practically. It is okay to think strategically. See, the Bible emphasizes and will always value the eternal over the temporal. The focus is always on eternity, not on this exact moment, but the Bible also does not neglect the practical reality of living in a broken, fallen world. So what Nehemiah is doing here is ensuring that all the work that they've just completed doesn't get undone by negligence or laziness. Because it's not enough to rebuild a wall. They need to rebuild the people. need to restore their relationship with God so that the people who belonged to God can return to him. And so Nehemiah creates a registry of genealogical names. So Jerusalem belongs to the people of God and they needed to know who gets in and who gets out. And so now what has to be the most exciting thing in all of existence, the moment that we've all been waiting for, the reason that you braved this crazy weather, right? A giant list of names. Yay! Love it. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up from the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the, of the province who came out of captivity and of those whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judea, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ram. Okay, so here's what we're going to do before I make an absolute fool of myself and read some of these names. I'm real bad at names. I want to be, this is confession time, I'm horrible at them. I have a made-up mental condition that I call namelexia, and that is when a name goes into my head, it gets into a little filter, gets randomized, and then other names that are not the name that I just heard come out. Like, I will meet someone, they'll be like, hi, my name is Steve, and I'll be like, nice to meet you, Brandon. Yep, that was close. Missed it by that much. <laughs> I have introduced myself as the wrong name before. And not on purpose. And it wasn't close. Right? I met a guy that was like, hey, my name is Andrew. Oh, that's not it. So if you ever find yourself in that horrible situation, here's the move. You walk away and hope they forget you and that you don't have to talk to them until like two months later when they've forgotten that you just did that. Because there's no way to recover from identifying yourself as the wrong person. I wasn't even standing next to an Andrew. It was just, I'm an idiot. Bad at names, bad at pronouncing names. So, out of a desire to preserve any hope that you perceive me as an intellectual human being capable of thought, I'm not going to read all these names. Because, look, go through them. You read some of these names, right? Some of them need to go on Wheel of Fortune and buy a vowel. In addition to the fact that the Hebrew alphabet is very different from the English alphabet, and there's lots of <laughs> kind of sounds that I don't know when and where to make. Okay, so we're just going to not and say that we didn't. Instead, I'm going to tell you why this list of names is here and what it means. Because you look at it and you go, 61. There's 73 verses, 61 of them. It's an unadulterated list of names. And then there's three more that are about donations. I know what you're thinking. 
This is the text you have? Why'd you even bother writing a sermon? You could have just read the names and done an altar call. Everybody gets saved. Right? I'm already saved. I get re-saved for that. Because you get all these people that don't know anything about Christianity. They're like, I've been on the fence for a while. I don't really buy this. But, but reading 61 verses of names in a row, I'm in. And then there's like an angelic chorus that comes down from heaven. And it's, oh, it's beautiful. Like, has that ever happened? No. What was the last time you're like, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus because somebody listed a bunch of names of people I don't know anything about. So you look at this, and like, there's a part of it just like, why? Nehemiah, like, why do you hate me, firstly? Why did I, what did I do to you? But secondly, why? When you could just write a bunch of people showed up and we wrote their names down, why did you bother writing down all their actual names for us? Of all the things that Jesus said and did, you go, this is the thing that you thought needed to be preserved for 2,000 years? There's three reasons why. Firstly, these are real people. They're human beings who have families, who have children, who leave behind a legacy that is worthy of remembrance. These are people whose entire lives, every decision that they made, everything that they did and accomplished in their life has historically been reduced to a single thing. Because we know literally nothing about almost all of these people. But they were here. That's what we know. Number two. The Bible is not just a holy book, it is also a history book. It is unique amongst all religious texts in this. The Bible doesn't say, here's the teaching, and you have to accept it on blind faith. It goes, here's the teaching, here's some history. Verify the history, and that can give you better confidence in what we are teaching you to do. So it provides a historological record to verify the truthfulness and accuracy of the information it is presenting. Most importantly, is that the Bible was not written to 21st century Americans. We live in an individualistic society where nobody gets to define you, nobody gets to tell you who you are. You get to be whatever you want to be regardless of anything that has to do with facts, truth, or information outside of that. Who you are and your identity is going to be determined by a series of a combination of the people, the relationships you have, the things that you accomplish, your attitudes, and your beliefs. Some combination of those four things will define who you are. And that's it. Most cultures are not wired that way. And the Jews are not an individualistic society that thinks only about the person. They're a society that thinks about the community. They're a corporate society that focuses on togetherness. And the Jews believed that there is power in the blood. And so when you get into like Matthew and Luke and they list this long list of names that had to do with Jesus and where he came from, we look at that and go, cool, let's just skip to where the angels show up. That was the most exciting part for them. That was the part that got them all wired up and excited because that was their value. They believed that power was in the blood, which meant a person's worth, their honor, their gifts, their strengths, their capacities, all of that was passed down from generation to generation. And so if you could tie yourself to an ancestor who was noble, you told everybody, I'm important. I have value. I don't have value because I have a lot of people that follow me on YouTube. I have value because my great-great-grandfather was this guy. So what Nehemiah is doing here in this giant list of names is he's expressing to the Jewish people a very powerful, very effective tool that is he is calling them to repentance. He's saying, okay, look, you've drifted. 
You've wandered away from God a bit. You're not where you're supposed to be. But here's the thing. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. You're not just you. You're more than this moment. Remember that you're the son of Eli, the son of Barak, the son of Samson, the son of Jonah, the son of whoever. Remember where you came from. What he's doing with this list of 61 verses of names is he's calling the people of God to come back to God, to return to him, to repent of their sin, and to trust and seek God once again. And for Nehemiah's audience, this was a powerful and inspiring section of verses. Something that we should all remember and value. You see, one of the things that God likes to do in Scripture is He likes to take physical things and use them to explain more complex spiritual realities. And so the Bible is broken up into two covenants. You've got the Old Covenant or Old Testament and the New Covenant. So pre-Jesus, post-Jesus. In the Old Covenant, we have the nation of Israel, a group of people, a physical nation of people who were called by God to be set apart from all of their nations. He made them distinct. He made them unique. He chose them to be his own. And these Israelites lived holy lives by being separate from all the other nations, by avoiding the influences of the other nations so that they could be wholly and completely focused on God. In the new covenant, what we have is not a physical nation of Israel, but a spiritual nation of Israel. That is all the children of God, those who surrender their lives to Jesus and through his blood and sacrifice on the cross have been adopted into the family of God. We become the new people of God. And just like the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, we are called to be holy, to be set apart and unlike all the other peoples of the world. The difference, however, is that we are not called to separate ourselves physically from the other nations, but ideologically, spiritually separated from the other peoples. That is that we focus our hearts our minds and our lives on the things of God and we do not allow worldviews and worldly perspectives to influence or corrupt our understanding of God. Because what often happens, especially in our culture and society, is that the understandings and views of the world is where we start. So the world says this is love and so we bring that into the Bible. And the world says this is tolerance and we bring that into the Bible. And the world says this is right and wrong so we bring that into the Bible. And the world says this is good and how it should be so we bring that into the Bible. Because the typical default component is that we take the views and perspectives of the world and we look at the word through that lens. But as the people of God are calling is not to look at the word through the lens of the world is to look at the world through the lens of the word. It is to start with Jesus. It is to focus on Jesus. It is to make Jesus the emphasis of our hearts and lives. That everything that we see, we see through his perspective, not the world's perspective. That good is not what the world says it is. Good is what Jesus says it is. That love is not what the world says it is. It's what Jesus says it is. And church, we are being called to repent. from the influences that we have allowed to skewer our perspective away from God. From the worldly thinking, values, and ideologies that do not fit 
with who Jesus is and who Jesus calls us to be. What Nehemiah is doing, what we need just as much today is the call to remember who we are. We are in this world, but we are not of this world because Jesus has brought us out of the world when he made us his own, his children. 61 verses of names are listed to say to you, remember who you are. Stop living for what's happening around you and live for the King who died to save you. And that leads us to verse 73. So the priests, Levites, the gatekeepers, singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. See, Levites and priests, their job was to explain the word of God to people. So you have these people who have been appointed already. First thing he does, he starts appointing these people and say, your job is to help return our minds to God. Teach us what the word means. Teach us how to understand it, that we might live and honor him so that we can get rid of the worldliness, so we can get rid of the outside influences and we can be about what God is about again. The singers played a central role in public worship. Their job was to help return people's hearts to God so that their passions and desires would return to him. And these groups of spiritual leaders worked alongside the gatekeepers, the security force of this new city. What that tells us is that those who are entrusted with the spiritual care of the people of God also carry some responsibility for the physical protection of the people of God. Because the people in the city of Jerusalem could not focus their hearts and minds on God wholly if they didn't have some degree of safety physically. Nehemiah is not a book about a wall. It's a book about rebuilding a people. Nehemiah is a book about God calling his people home. Saying, come back to me. Let go of the influences around you. Let go of what the last two years have been and all the things that weigh down on our minds because of the anxieties and the worries and the doubts that we have. Focus on me. Be about me. It is a call to repentance, to seek God, to trust God, and to live for Him. Because when the people of God let go of our sins, when we let go of the worldliness that influences our decisions and our thinking, We position ourselves to experience a move of God that can change everything around us. See, the grace of God is given to all, but the favor of God falls only on some. And the favor of God falls on those typically who seek, pursue, and desire Him, forsaking all other things to live for Him. For some of us, that's exactly what we need right now. We need to let go of all the other stuff we've been carrying, all the other baggage, all the other things that begin to take control of our lives. But what we all need to recognize here is that God's use for you 
may not be in an area of your giftedness. His great plan for your heart, for your life, may not be in a place that you consider yourself good at. I am terrified of public speaking. Legitimately, completely, I try explaining to people, they never listen to me. The idea of standing on a stage with a bunch of people facing the other opposite direction, looking at me while I talk, keeps me up at night when I know I'm not even going to be doing it for the next month. And this is where God called me to be. Sometimes what God has in mind for you is not an area of strength or confidence or security that you have for yourself. Sometimes the best thing that God's going to do for you is in the last place you'd ever expect yourself to be used. Do not let your view of yourself hinder what God has in store for you. Because God says, do it. And when he says, do it, he'll make a way for it to happen. So what we need to understand with that is that you cannot follow Jesus from a comfort zone. This is one of the, the most frustrating things about Jesus is he is deliberate and intentional in his destruction of whatever zone or walls you put up. Because the whole idea of following Jesus, right, is following, believing, that's a passive thing. You can believe from your seat. You can believe without moving. Following requires movement. Because where Jesus goes, if you're following him, that means when he goes here, you go here with him. And when Jesus inevitably goes to some place you're not comfortable being, there you are. And the joy and the comfort that you have is knowing that you're not there by yourself. But you can't follow Jesus if you stop at the edge of your comfort zone. Because the truth that we have to understand is that Jesus may meet you in your comfort zone, but he will never leave you there. He is tenacious in this. And the harder you fight it, well, I can tell you from personal but the harder you fight that, the more you become Jonah. So if you don't want to get eaten by a giant fish and then spit up on a beach three days later, stop fighting it. Just do what he says to do. <laughs> it's way less gross. So often, the ruler of our life it's not ultimately God. It's what we're comfortable with. And so when God calls you, like he did Nehemiah, a cupbearer to go build a wall and to put the pressures of a nation on his back, when God calls you to do something that you don't feel qualified to do, when you don't feel capable of doing, when you don't feel comfortable doing, the question that we have to ask ourselves every day is if God calls me to go, do I love him enough to say yes, regardless of where it is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us. For the love that you give, that you don't wait for us, but that God, that you reach into the darkness of our lives and you pull us into your life. Thank you for what you give for the hope and the joy and the peace that we have in you because when we know our future, there is nothing that happens around us that we ever have to really worry about. Help us trust you. Help us turn to you. Help us seek you at every step of our life. And God, I pray that every single day we would fall more in love with you. Give us comfort. Give us peace. Give us confidence. 
but most importantly, give us opportunities to glorify you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.